All right, you guys can have a seat. It's good to see all of you. Um, congrats to those of you that did the flying pig already uh, and, and got up. And, yeah, we're here for church. That's cool. Um, yeah, it, it's awesome to be here worshiping with you guys. Have you thought about what a miracle it is that we are actually here worshiping Jesus together this morning? And I mean that in all seriousness. Like, I'm not trying to overstate things. It actually is miraculous that we are here together worshiping Jesus in Cincinnati, Ohio in 2023. Right? Like, just think about why I say that. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He grew up in Nazareth, which is over 6,000 miles from here. There probably isn't anyone in this room that speaks the same languages that Jesus spoke. Most, if not all of us, are probably a diff different ethnicity than he was. He was a man that had to eat, drink, sleep, use the bathroom, you know, all that kind of stuff, all of that. Yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, worshiping Jesus as our king. I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? We're, we're here, we love him, we worship him, we follow him, we center our lives around him. He affects the ways that we think and act. Your life is significantly impacted by the life of this man that lived on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago. That you, at least on an external physical sense, probably had very little in common with. It's wild to think that that's our reality. But it is. Like, here we are. Worshiping Jesus. And it's not just us worshiping Jesus here. There are people all over the world that are doing the same. Every single country on this planet has had the gospel proclaimed in it. Every single one. Now, there are lots of individuals still that haven't heard the gospel. There are certain people groups that there's been very little uh, gospel preaching that's happened amongst. But every political state, every, within those borders, every single one, the gospel has been preached within it. And there are Christians there. This is nothing short of miraculous when you think about it. I really don't think it's an overstatement to, uh, to say that it is a miracle that we are here worshiping Jesus together on this morning. It might seem like your Monday and Sunday routine, but it's really not. So we have to ask, like, how is it that we got to this point? Like, when you look at the improbability of something like this happening... How is it that we got to this point that we're all here worshiping Jesus together 2,000 years later on the other side of the world and there's people all over the world doing it? Well, it's a long story. There's a lot to it. Uh, but we're going to be looking at the beginning of that story together this summer as we read the book of Acts together. Today we're starting off a new sermon series in the book of Acts. And uh, this is really just the story of God's unstoppable growth of his church. The, the way that we see how Jesus had died, he rose from the dead, he had invested in these disciples, he commissions them to go and make disciples of all nations, he says they're going to receive power to do this, and here we are, at the ends of the earth, worshiping him 2,000 years later. And so I'm excited for us to go through Acts to see how God's church grew against all odds, uh, being able to go through every single kind of obstacle that it faced. There's so much that we can learn as a church from the book of Acts. Uh, it's a big book, and we want to cover it all this summer, uh, but that means that we're only going to be able to cover some of it here on Sunday mornings. 
uh, other parts that we don't get to on the Sunday mornings, we're going to cover on Thursday nights at Life Group. And then still, even between those two, we're not going to be able to cover everything. So we'll also be sending out some guided readings for you to do uh, on your own as some of those uh, passages come up that we just won't be able to get to in either context. But today, we're just going to be getting into chapter 1. And um, before this church really starts to grow and expand and reach all sorts of people that, that weren't already believers, we see that there's some foundational work that had to be done in Acts chapter 1. Before they could, the church could start growing, they really needed three things. They needed conviction, they needed anticipation, and they needed preparation. And so that's really what we're going to be uh, looking at this morning. So I'm ready to dive in, uh, but I want to pray first and ask that God's going to guide our time this morning. Um, God, we thank you that we do get to be here to worship you together. Um, Jesus, I know that you are the best thing that's ever happened to me. My life is totally changed because of you. And I just, I thank you for that unstoppable power uh, of your, your church growing and making it all across the world and allowing me to hear the gospel and, and for everyone else that's here to be able to hear the gospel. I thank you for that, Lord. God, we pray that as we get into your word this morning, that you would open our eyes to see more clearly who you are and what you do. And God, we pray that you would help us to be a church that reflects you well. Uh, we love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to be uh, starting off in Acts chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can uh, open it up there. I'll also have the verses on the screen for you. I am going to break it up into a few different sections, but we'll be reading the whole chapter overall this morning. Uh, I'll just start with reading the first three verses here, though. It says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. All right, we'll stop right there. So the book of Acts was written by Luke. And uh, Luke was actually not one of Jesus' 12 disciples. We don't know uh, how or when exactly he became a Christian. Uh, but we do know uh, that he was almost certainly Gentile and that he was a close associate of Paul. Um, and we see that he was actually even with him on a lot of the occasions that we'll see later in Acts. He's also the one that wrote the Gospel of Luke. Okay, which is the former book that he's referring to there in verse 1. So the Gospel of Luke was kind of like volume 1, and then Acts is like the sequel to, to Luke. Um, both of these books were written to a man named Theophilus. So you see that in the introduction to Luke. I'll just read the first four verses of that Gospel here as well. It says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So we see Acts here is really a continuation of the work that Luke started um, in helping people know about everything that Jesus did. Now we're going to see everything that happened uh, after that, what, what the church did. And he says, he's, he looked into these accounts, he's uh, made, made sure to do this so that we can know the truth about what happened. And this is important for us to realize, 
the, the Bible is full of historical accounts, okay? The Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, this is a historical account. People sometimes forget that the Bible is a historical document, okay? It's not just some sort of weird mystic book that dropped down out of heaven or, you know, like an angel gave it to someone in a cave or something like that. that that's not what it is. This is a historical document. Now, we believe that it's inspired by God, meaning that God directed the writers and the compilers to communicate accurately what it is that he wanted to say, but it was still written by people. And the accounts that are recorded are accounts of real historical events. In many cases, the author was even an eyewitness to these events. And that was the case for Luke with a lot of what we'll see, at least in the second half of Acts. Now, this should mean something to us. Right, That we have somebody's testimony saying, hey, I, I was around, I was living in this time period, and these are the things that were happening. I want you to think for a second, how is it that you know pretty much anything that you know? The, the vast majority of what you know, how do you know it? I would venture to say that the vast majority of what you know is not because you have witnessed it or investigated it yourself, it's because somebody has told you about it. How do you know that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Was anyone there at his inauguration? Yeah? No, obviously not, right? But I'll bet that we all believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. Why? Because we have accounts from witnesses that lived in that time period that told us about how he was president. And they passed that knowledge on to future generations. How do you know that the American Civil War happened? I assume we all believe that that event took place. How? None of us witnessed it. Well, we, we have, what, a historical record. People that were there, that were living in that time, wrote about it, told us about it, and, and passed that knowledge on to future generations. How do you know that Napoleon existed? I'm assuming most of us believe that, that he was around and he, he did the things that he did. He conquered most of Europe. How? Well, we know because, once again, historical witnesses that have passed that knowledge on to us. This is exactly what Luke is doing when he wrote his gospel and he wrote the book of Acts. This is someone who is living in that time period saying, I saw these events, I looked into them, I'm passing this knowledge on to you. If you only believed something, if you saw it with your own eyes, you would know very, very little. <laughs> you would be like the least knowledgeable person in the room by far, Right? One of the reasons that we as human beings are actually so smart is because we're excellent at sharing knowledge with each other. We don't have to learn everything firsthand. You know, sometimes we think that our generation is like smarter than the ones that came before us. We're not any smarter than people that lived 5,000 years ago. The, the reality is we just get to stand on their shoulders because we have all of this accumulated knowledge over time that we already get to work off of. Now, I'm getting a little philosophical here, but... I want you to realize that when you are reading the Bible, you are not reading a fantasy novel, okay? You're not reading the best, a best-selling fiction book. This is a collection of a lot of different kinds of literature, but in the case of the Gospels and the book of Acts, you are reading primary sources, historical documents from witnesses and people that talk to witnesses about real historical events. So Luke's Gospel told us the real stories about Jesus of what he did and what he taught. And one of the things that Jesus did that was very important was he went to the cross and he died and he rose from the dead. And Luke brings that back up here in verse 3 of Acts chapter 1. He says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
So just in case Luke wasn't abundantly clear in his gospel, he wants to reiterate the real historical physical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. He says he gave many convincing proofs. If you just look at Luke's gospel, these are just just the ones that he listed. Angels appearing to women said that he was alive. Um, Jesus appeared to two men that were traveling to a village outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. Uh, He showed the 11 disciples, as well as some others that were present, the wounds from the crucifixion on his body, trying to help him realize he wasn't a goat. Um, He literally ate a piece of fish in their presence, once again, helping them realize he wasn't a spirit or a ghost. He had a real body that was able to eat a fish and digest it. But that's not everything. Uh, We see other post-resurrection encounters described in the other Gospels. And even in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, we see a reference to a time that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. So Jesus was very much alive and present with the disciples after he rose from the dead. In fact, here in Acts chapter 1, we see that he was teaching them for a period of 40 days. Right? Like, look back at that. It says he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Think about what this means. This means that you absolutely cannot explain the resurrection by saying, oh, they had a weird dream, or they had a hallucination, or something like that. The the gospel writers make it abundantly clear that that is absolutely not an option for explaining the resurrection. And I have never talked to a skeptic that's been able to give me anything close to an adequate explanation of the resurrection, right? Because something crazy happened that totally changed the world. And I know that it's hard to believe that a man rose from the dead, but every other way I've had people try to explain it to me, they fall woefully short. And, and you can see, like, th- there's no way that you can say, well, was, yeah, they just saw a ghost or had a weird dream one day or whatever. Jesus is with them for a period of 40 days continually teaching them about the kingdom of God. The Bible is abundantly clear that Jesus physically rose from the dead and spent time amongst his followers on multiple occasions. And this time was absolutely key. And I believe that it transformed them. If they weren't already sure of who Jesus was before the resurrection, there could absolutely be no doubt now. They knew who he was. They knew that he was the son of God, and they knew that it was appropriate to worship him. You'll see other times where where people try to worship them in Acts, and they rebuff that. Uh, With Jesus, when they worship him, he doesn't rebuff that. It is appropriate to worship him as God. Peter denied knowing Jesus earlier, uh, before the resurrection. You're not going to see him do that again, even in, in spite of massive pressure to do so. When you become convinced of Jesus' resurrection, it changes you. It opens your eyes to see that life is so much bigger than the mundane day-to-day things that take all of our attention. It makes you excited for the kingdom of God to come in fullness because you tasted it. Uh, you, can, you see here that this, this real eternal life that Jesus wants to give us, he's the first fruits of our resurrection. And they see the real resurrected Christ that's defeated death, realizing, man, like th- this is what God is ushering in. Th- this kingdom, it's, it's not fully here. We still have a lot of death and pain and sorrow and sin and all this kind of stuff. But man, it's breaking in. That's what Jesus said when he pulled up on the scene. And then th- now he raises from the dead and, and you're getting this incredible taste of this. It changes you. They were convinced. And this conviction led to anticipation. What is it that's going to happen now in the future? So conviction is the first thing. Anticipation is the second. Let's uh, move on and read a little bit about their anticipation here. Acts 1 verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. And suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking at, into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Okay, the, the, these verses, this section I think is filled with anticipation. We see that there are some big things that are going to happen, all right? One is going to happen very soon. We're told a time frame for it. Another one is going to happen at some point. We're not necessarily given a time frame for it. So let's start with the one that's promised to happen in the near future. Jesus speaks to this reality of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. When is this going to happen? Well, we don't know, but he said it's not going to be long. In a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, we know, if you've read Acts, or, or if you come to Life Group this Thursday, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is going to come in a very dramatic way at Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. Uh, Passover is when Jesus was crucified. Um, so, remember, Jesus had that 40-day period that he was teaching the disciples. Uh, then there would have been a 10-day period after his ascension. Well, not even that because of three. So I guess it would have been a seven-day period. And then you would have Pentecost come. So some, somewhere in that time frame, uh, Jesus tells them that they still need to keep waiting and that soon the Holy Spirit is going to come and they're, they're, they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, what exactly does that mean? Right? That's the bigger question. What is it that Jesus is telling them to wait for? Uh, the word baptize uh, literally means to immerse or submerge. So the idea here is that the disciples are going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit in some way. Now, the Holy Spirit is not something that's new, per se. Like, it, it's not like it's something that they'd never heard of or never seen the work of. We actually see the Holy Spirit working all throughout Scripture. Uh, if, you're, if you hold to Christian doctrine, we actually believe God is triune. He's Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit is eternal. It's not like he just shows up on the scene once the book of Acts comes along. As a matter of fact, I just want to help you see this. Just like sometimes, we can see Jesus in the Old Testament. People sometimes just struggle with it. You can actually see the Holy Spirit pop up a lot in the Old Testament. It's even easier to see sometimes uh, than Jesus. Look at Genesis 1, uh, second verse of the Bible. Genesis 1, uh, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And there are times throughout this, the Scripture that the Holy Spirit would still come, and he would empower people to, to do things, right? Uh, we see the, the Holy Spirit. This is just a small sample I'm going to give you here. Holy Spirit comes upon Samson, uh, one of the judges of Israel, to, to help him kill a lion. Look at this story. Judges 14, 5 to 6. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. 
right? So here's the Holy Spirit coming upon Samson and empowering him to do something extraordinary. And in this case, that was tearing a lion apart with his bare hands, which is pretty epic. Um, we see that David, uh, who would be the king of Israel, was anointed. When he was anointed to be the future king of Israel, the spirit comes upon him. We see this in 1 Samuel 16, 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. So Daniel was, uh, sorry, David was anointed to be king. And what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon him in, this, in, in some way. Uh, we don't see specifically what exactly. We just see that it's with him. And, and you see David do all of these extraordinary things, actually, over the course of his life that I think are no doubt empowered by the, the Holy Spirit uh, being with him. Uh, we see that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary to conceive Jesus, even though she was a virgin. Uh, Luke 1, 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. All of this is before Pentecost. Uh, as a matter of fact, then, you can even go to Luke 1, 25 to 27. There's this guy named Simeon. We don't get much about him in Scripture, uh, but we do see this, this very brief uh, story about him right around that same time of the birth of Jesus. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. So we see this guy Simeon, like he was greatly led and impacted by the Holy Spirit. There's other examples I could show you too, but I think you get the idea by now. That the Holy Spirit was already active in the world in some way before the ministry of Jesus. Um, this is undeniably true, yet Jesus still spoke of a future outpouring of the Spirit that was going to happen after he left the earth. Look at what he said in John's Gospel. John 15, 26 to 27. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. A few verses later he says, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, so we've seen, man, the Spirit has been active in a lot of ways throughout history. Yet in some way, he's still saying there's this, the, the, he, he's going to send the Holy Spirit in the future. There's going to be a future outpouring that takes place. So in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus said they had heard him speak about this promise, he had to be referencing what he was talking about here. Where he said, hey, I, if, when I go, I'm going to send the Spirit. So in some way, they're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And when this happened, they would receive the power that was necessary to complete the task that God had given them. And that's why in Acts 1.8, he told them they would receive power to be his witnesses. Just like Samson wouldn't have been able to kill that lion with his bare hands, apart from the Spirit of God coming upon him, there's no way that the disciples could fulfill their task to go and, and be witnesses to the ends of the earth unless the Holy Spirit were to empower them. Now, there's a lot more that we could talk about here. There's differing views within Christianity about the specifics of what exactly it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. To be honest, I feel like I'm still learning a lot uh, in this area. So for right now, I'm going to leave it where Jesus did 
uh, where he doesn't go into extreme detail telling us exactly what that means or what exactly it's going to look like. He just promises that it's going to happen soon, and he seems to trust that they'll know it when it happens. Now, there's another thing in this passage filled with anticipation, uh, and that is the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Right after Jesus spoke about the way that he was going to, uh, that they were going to be baptized in the Spirit, they asked this question in verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this might seem like kind of a strange question to us, uh, maybe out of left field, but if you understood their current living situation and what the Old Testament prophets had said, their question actually makes a lot of sense that they would ask it right at this time. So when you think about their current living situation, all of these guys were Jewish men. They lived in a land that was once ruled by Jewish kings, but that hadn't been the case for a long time. Hundreds of years ago, because their sin, God had sent them into exile. They were conquered. Many of the people were taken away. They were taken to foreign lands. A lot of them did get to come back, but they were still ruled by a foreign power. Currently, that foreign power was Rome, which is the power that crucified Jesus. So they didn't really have their own kingdom right now. And their nation was supposed to be one that had a special relationship with God, where they would live obediently under him as their ultimate king. So they're looking forward to the restoration of this kind of kingdom. They want their independence, not just to be out from the thumb, under the thumb of Rome, but to, have this special, to be this special kind of nation that they thought they were supposed to be. Now, the Old Testament prophets also wrote about this idea. They wrote of a time where God would pour out his spirit and that Israel would be restored. Take this example from Ezekiel 36, 24 to 28. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So look at what's foretold there, right? That they would be gathered back into their own land, uh, that they would be his people and he would be their God. And we see that something that's an important marker of this is that God is going to put his spirit in them. So it makes total sense that when Jesus starts talking about this idea that they're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, that they would say, oh, is this the time? Is this the time that that kingdom is going to be restored to Israel? Now, Jesus doesn't tell them that they're wrong in asking that question. He's not like, oh, no, the kingdom's never going to be restored to Israel. He doesn't really address that so much. He doesn't tell them if their expectations of what this is going to look like are accurate or inaccurate about what's going to happen in the future. I can say there's, there's certainly some sort of restoration of the kingdom that's going to happen in the future. What exactly that looks like, again, is up for debate. And unfortunately, I don't have time to get into that debate this morning. Um, but if you want to talk more about it, I'd be happy to, to do that with you in another context. But their big question here uh, wasn't even so much what that restoration would look like, but their question was a matter of timing. When is this going to happen? Is this going to happen now? And Jesus said, hey, it's not for you to know when exactly that's going to happen. But what was important for them is to know the mission that he was setting ahead of them. Yes, the spirit was going to come soon. That restoration of the kingdom, maybe that's still far off in the future, but at least that part about the spirit being put in you, that's coming right now. And you're going to need it to fulfill this mission to go and be my witnesses everywhere. 
Now, there's one other significant event that this text looks forward to with anticipation, and that's the return of Jesus. Naturally, as Jesus ascends into the sky, it would have been crazy, right? I can just imagine, you know, watching that. I think I would be stuck (laughs) continuing looking up at the sky. I don't know how I would handle seeing something like that. And then these angels appear to them, and, and, and they say this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken away from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So what we see here is a promise about the return of Christ. Jesus is going to come back again at some point, And it seems likely to me that when he comes back, that's going to be when that full restoration of the kingdom happens. Now, similarly to that restoration, we, we don't know the time or the date, right? Jesus talked about, we don't, we don't know when he's going to return. We don't know when this is going to happen. We just know that it's going to happen. And when it happens, it's going to be obvious. He's going to come back on the sky. He's not going to be some obscure person <coughs> that shows up in a corner of the earth that, or anything like that. Uh, Jesus gave warnings about this. Uh, how we'll know when he's coming. Matthew 24, 23 to 30 says this. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, (coughs) there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, the, the first coming of Christ kind of happens in an obscure place. He was born in a manger out in a relatively unimportant part of the world from a geopolitical standpoint. But he's telling us, when I come again the second time, it's not going to be like that. You don't have to go out in the wilderness. I'm not going to be a back room. I'm coming on the clouds with power and great glory. Now, I wanted to share this, this with you. It's important. I actually know that there are some, like, false teachers that even walk around on our campus sometimes talking about how they're, like, the Messiah has shown up in Asia or something like that. I don't know if you guys have run into any of those people. He hasn't, right? Like, Jesus straight up addresses that. If someone tells you that there's this, this false Messiah or whatever, it, he, he's not here. When Jesus comes again the second time, it's going to be very clear, very obvious, and it's going to be ushering in the end. So, they were convinced of his resurrection they were anticipating these great things that were to come. Baptism with the Holy Spirit, restoration of the kingdom, the return of Christ. Well now, how do they prepare for this? It was time to stop standing around looking at the sky and get ready and prepare for the mission that God had put before them. And the first step in this preparation might have actually been the hardest, which is wait. Right? Acts 1-4, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. This might have been the hardest part. They weren't getting any younger. They were called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, make disciples of all nations, and they had to start by waiting? I don't know about you, when I feel like I'm overwhelmed with a bunch of work, like waiting isn't the first thing I want to do. I want to try and get to that work as fast as I possibly can. 
And yet Jesus makes them wait. Maybe he wanted it to be character building. Maybe he wanted to help them realize that they couldn't run out ahead of God to get his work done. Maybe he wanted those words that he spoke to them in John 15 about how apart from him they can do nothing to sink in. So what did they do while they were waiting? Scroll through Instagram? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Witness this baptism of the Holy Spirit coming. <laughs> no, we're going to read on and see what they did actually in this waiting period. Uh, we'll read verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received from his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a keldama, which is field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted and let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Okay, so we see, this is what they're doing in, in their waiting time. I see three major things that they did. First off, pretty obvious, they prayed, right? First thing they did, they joined together and they were consistently praying. I love verse 14, it says, together constantly in prayer. They, they did this. There is no better way to prepare for ministry than to spend time praying. They knew that they had a huge task ahead and they knew that they weren't going to be able to do it themselves. And so what they did was pray together. Prayer humbles us. It declares our need for the Lord. It reminds us that we can't do anything apart from him. It aligns our hearts with his. Helps us to see things the way that he does. It attunes our ears to hear the things that he wants to say. And they knew that they needed that. So here they are banding together constantly in prayer. We see something else that they did was they searched the scriptures. Uh, in 16 and 17, he says, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. So not only did they pray, but they went to the scriptures. Why? Well, I think that this was something that was both really important for helping them process the past and for helping them see a path forward into the future. First, when you think about processing the past, do you think that the disciples had some emotional baggage that they probably had to deal with? I, I, I don't know that I've ever even really thought about that until this week when I started preparing this sermon of like, 
the difficulty it must have been. Like, Judas was, like, one of their boys. Like, they were with this guy for three years. Like, they, they ate with him. They, they, they traveled, like, walking around constantly with him. You know, they were all sleeping in similar contexts. Like, they, he was learning from Jesus with them. He was sent out to, to do ministry with them. Like, this was a dude that I'm sure that they, like, trusted and, and cared about and that kind of stuff. And, like, he betrayed, he, he betrayed all of them, and Jesus most specifically. And, like, I don't know, I, I think that might have been something that was hard to process. God, how could you let something like this happen? And so as Peter turns to the scriptures, he sees, like, hey, this was something that the Holy Spirit foretold long ago through David actually had to take place. Now, the, the Psalms, I'm not going to go to them, but the, the two Psalms that he's referencing there, they're actually those really uncomfortable Psalms to read. We call them imprecatory Psalms, where David's just like calling out bad stuff on his enemies. Um, and and it, it seems like that helped Peter and the disciples realize that, hey, in, in some way, this must have been part of God's plan. I don't know entirely how Peter got what he did out of those psalms, uh, but he, he's an apostle. I trust that the Spirit was guiding him in his interpretation of that. Um, but I think this was something that was helping him process uh, the, even the, the difficulty of having one that betrayed Jesus and betrayed the rest of them. And not only did it help them with that, uh, w- w- with processing the past, but I think it was helpful in making them move forward. He talked about that, let another one take his place of leadership. And he sees this principle, and, and I guess through the illumination of the Spirit to Peter, he's realizing, hey, this is something that we have to do here. Judas was wicked. He's gone his own way. He, he's done away. He, he killed himself. He's, his gut spilled out in the field. It's time for us to have raised someone else up that's going to be able to fulfill this place of leadership. And so that's what they did. They, they, uh, that last step was not only did they pray, not only did they uh, read the Scripture, but they built their team. They replaced that, that office that was vacated by Judas. And they let Matthias come in and take up that office. Now, they didn't know exactly what was coming, right? But they did know that God gave them a big mission and that they were going to need the Spirit, the power of the Spirit to accomplish it. And it seems like they knew they needed a team to accomplish it too. Under the guidance of the Lord, they filled the spot that Judas vacated among the apostles. And I think it's cool that not only did they do this, but they stuck together as a team too. You see when they were praying, like they, they were constantly praying together. It lists how all those disciples were there. It lists, the, uh, it says the women were there too that had been a part of that ministry. We see that there were 120 of them gathered when Peter uh, got up and, and said that they needed to replace that office that was vacated by Judas. If you have ever been somewhere where like an event ends or like, you know, you're part of a team and you, you, the season's done or it's, it's, your goal is accomplished, what happens? People disperse. Everyone kind of goes their own way. They do their own thing because that mission that was holding them together is, is over. And in some ways you might have thought like, well, yeah, we were all with Jesus. That was the thing that was banding us together. He's gone now. He ascended into heaven. We're all going to kind of go our own way. But they understood the mission wasn't done. Not at all. They were sticking together as a team and waiting until God gave them direction on what they needed to do next. The resurrection showed them that the death of Jesus wasn't the end of their mission, but rather they needed to stay together and wait for God's direction on what to do next. I think of this like an army that's like standing on alert, ready to be deployed. They don't necessarily have their specific orders yet, but they're ready to be deployed at an instant. And so where do we go from here? 
we see that they were convinced of the resurrection. We see that they were anticipating great things that God was going to do. And we see that they were preparing for their mission. Through prayer, through reading the scripture, and through building their team. And so is this just a cool historical story? Or is there some sort of impact that it should have on our lives today? And, and I would say there's definitely impact that it should have on our lives today. There's so much that we can learn from this. And really, as I, I look at their conviction, my prayer is that we would be people that live with the same kind of conviction, right? First off, it starts with, are you convinced that Jesus is actually risen from the dead? This was like the bedrock thing that would help launch the rest of their ministry. You'll see this come up in their preaching. You'll see Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians 15, saying, man, if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is in vain. And so I don't know where each of you guys are in your faith, but the first thing I would say is, man, if you want to continue to grow as a Christian, you want to be empowered to be someone uh, that is a witness, then you need to first become convinced of the resurrection. Um, I started sharing my faith a lot more when I became fully convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. And there are a lot of really great apologetic resources out there uh, that you can use. Uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, great book that gets into a lot of stuff. That's one of the things. Case for Christ has a, some good material on uh, why you should believe the resurrection. There's a lot of good stuff that you can find out there on that. But if you feel like you need some extra convincing, then, then maybe that's something I would encourage you to do is really just go in and look into what is all the evidence that's supporting the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, I also pray that we'd be people that live in anticipation of what God's going to do. You know, they were waiting on this baptism of the, with the Holy Spirit. We see that happen. That's, that's in our past now. It was in their future. It's in our past. We see that God absolutely gives us his Holy Spirit, that he wants to empower us, empower us for mission. But one thing that I think we oftentimes don't live in anticipation of is the return of Jesus. It's been 2,000 years. And, and so th those first generation Christians, like in the first century, I think that this was something that they were like, probably going to bed every night thinking about, like, man, maybe Jesus is going to return. Now here we are two millennia later, and it's hard to kind of live with that same kind of mentality. Uh, thankfully, Jesus isn't late. He told, he told us we didn't know when it was going to happen. But we should live with this mentality of realizing, hey, Jesus is coming back at some point. And that should significantly affect the way that I live right now. Peter actually writes about this in, in a one of his letters, 2 Peter 3, 11 to 14, it's talking about how God is eventually going to judge the earth, which is going to happen when Jesus returns a second time. So he says this in 2 Peter 3, 11 to 14. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. We've been told how things are going to end, right? Like we know that God wins in the end. I don't care what sort of study or stats or anything you look at, trends, any of that kind of, none of that stuff really matters. In the end, we know what's going to happen. God is king. He will reign as king for eternity. He is going to judge this earth. He's going to bring in a new heavens and new earth. And that reality should affect the way that we live. 
One of those ways is that, yeah, we want to be people that are found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Well, how does that happen? First, it happens by putting your faith in Jesus. Like Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross and rose from the dead. Why? So that you could be forgiven. He purchased you as his bride. When it talks about being spotless and blameless, there is no way that you can be spotless and blameless by yourself. Every single one of us in here, has, even if you just looked at our past, is already very far from spotless and blameless. But the blood of Jesus was shed so that we could actually be washed and forgiven of sin. So when we put our faith in him, he says, hey, I've already paid for your sin. I've made a way for you to be forgiven. So you're not going to be able to get spotless and blameless on your, by yourself. You have to put your faith in Jesus to do that. But also as you put your faith in Jesus... We, you now have a responsibility not to, not to maintain your own salvation, like he's always going to be the one that saves you, but you have a responsibility to still walk in a way that's obedient to him. You want to be a person that is living in a state of peace with him. And so, man, that, that's what, um, what Peter's telling us here, man. Be people that live godly lives, that live holy. The, the, the return of Christ should impact the way that you think about your decisions, whether you're going to choose to live in sin or not live in sin. It should, think, it should affect the way that you think about people around you. Knowing that, hey, this judgment's coming. I have friends and family that don't know Jesus. I want to get them ready for that day. You know, and finally, just as the disciples prepared, I pray that we would be people that prepare well for our mission. He has called you to be a disciple maker. And you're going to need the exact same power to make disciples that the early church did. And so may we be people that pray that God would come and work. Like, that's the, that's the biggest thing we need is, God, pray, come and, and work through me. I'm just a broken vessel. I'm, a, I'm a, a jar of clay. I need you to come and work through me in your power. That we would search the scriptures and be guided by them, knowing that we don't have all of the wisdom that we need, but God is going to be the one that provides the direction for us and how we should live. And that we'd be people that build a team, right? Like, the disciples knew that they couldn't just do this thing by themselves. I pray that you guys would be people that, that build your team in preparation for mission. Like, that you have people in your corner that, that will pray with you, that will hold you accountable, that you can process uh, things with, that you can do ministry together. You see that people were constantly, and we're, we're going to go through Acts, they're getting sent out in groups, they're going in twos. There's ministry that's always happening together. We want to do this as a team. And so I hope that you'll be people that invest in the relationships with others around you so that you can help empower each other for ministry. So man, I'm excited to, uh, about getting into the rest of Acts with you guys as a church as we go through this in life group and on Sundays. Uh, and I'm excited to see what God is going to do in our church uh, because he's an awesome God and he gives us his spirit and he gives us power to go and be able to make disciples all the way to the ends of the earth. Here we are standing on the ends of the earth compared to Jerusalem and, and we're worshiping Jesus. Um, so, man, may we be people that continue on in that legacy of our forefathers in, uh, in the faith. Uh, let's pray. Ben, you can come back up. God, I thank you uh, that you love us and that you care for us. Um, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you empower us for ministry. Thank you that you empower us to be your witnesses. And, and God, we just confess that uh, we need your power. 
Think of how you told the disciples to, to wait. And God, I pray that you teach us to be people that, that even know how to wait on you and, and when you're calling us to move, when you're calling us to sit. God, help us to be attuned to your voice. As, as we'll see throughout Acts, there were uh, just times that, that people w- would hear your voice, they'd respond to it. I pray that we would be people that live in that same kind of manner. God, we praise you. We, we are convinced that you're king. We know that you're going to return. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to prepare for that day. Empower us to be great evangelists. Uh, that reach those that are around us. God, give us the team that we need to even live those kind of holy and godly, sincere lives that Peter was talking about. You're worthy of all of our worship, Lord. So we we just pray that uh, this offering of worship and music would be pleasing to you and that the way we live our lives as we go about this week would be pleasing to you as well. We pray all this in your son's awesome name. Amen.